If you don't stop imagining these crazy things, I'll take you to a doctor to have you examined. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF indeed. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour if our luck holds up. And of course, we stay on the good side of bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today, sir? Doing awesome as usual. Have your legs fallen asleep yet by staying in place? No. no. That's good. I That's good. That means you're staying active. That's good. That's what I want to hear. We took a walk yesterday. See, just making sure. Okay. Yeah, oh, we're, wa- we're walking. Walking, we're walking. walking. We're walking we're, here. We're, we're walking here. We have we have to keep walking because if we're not walking, we're eating. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, the decisions we have in life. A lot of people have been saying, "Man, I'm going to have to get on a diet when I can get out of the house." After all this, it's a unique set of circumstances for the nation. We haven't been through something like this before. And you find out there are going to be historians, of course, but also health professionals who are going to be writing up the history of this time. And however long it's going to be, short is nice, especially if we can make keep it short and safe. And they're going to be talking about how people rebooted their lives. That's my prediction. How did we reboot our lives? Because we have the opportunity to evaluate and reevaluate as we go through this pandemic. And what better person to talk about the sociological effects, particularly looked at through the cultural lens, when we discuss it in terms of disruptive play? Is your life disrupted? Mine is. Disruptive Play is a wonderful book, the subtitle to which is The Trickster in Politics and Culture. Shepard Siegel, Ph.D., is the author of that book. He's been on our show once before, and we felt we needed to have him back again for his perspective, and just because talking to him is a good time. Shepard Siegel was a rock and jazz musician, then educator, earning his doctorate at UC Berkeley. He has over 30 publications and numerous awards. He returned to his countercultural roots to write disruptive play, and share its message of playfulness and progressive change. Dr. Siegel lives in Seattle with a growing community of merry pranksters, and we'd like to consider ourselves among those people, even though we're way down here in Florida. Welcome once again to Manson Mitchell, Dr. Siegel. Thank you. It's just great to be here, and uh, I'm already feeling great about being with the two of you again. It's always fun. We'll hold you to it, and we'll try to live up to it at the same time. (laughs) Shepard Siegel, I'm curious, sir, everybody's got their story during the pandemic. Where were you during the pandemic on Earth, where the (laughs) pandemic was? And and what did you do? How did you handle it when people ask you how you are doing? What is your answer? Well, you know, for once, uh, timing was on my side because um, I went into this promotional phase for the book where I did readings um, all over Canada and the U.S., and uh, they ended in uh, roughly December and January, so I think I was very fortunate to have concluded that because, you know, everything else would have had to have been canceled. So um, in Seattle, I know you guys have some Seattle roots, right? Um, oh, yes. yes. You've lived here, and uh, uh 
and I, I guess we were fortunate to be where the first case was, and 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 and, and we have a very um, uh, just a governor for whom I have growing respect every day. He has really stepped up to the demand for leadership. And uh, I, I'm crossing my fingers and praying and hoping that uh, everything we're doing is actually going to get Washington State uh, through this. We've, we've, we've dropped considerably in the rankings in terms of, you know, number, a number of deaths and, and, and cases. Uh, and and we, we, we were on top of that list early on. So I'm in my home. I live in West Seattle. And just to put a little bit of icing on the pandemic cake, uh, the West Seattle Bridge, which connects us to the city, is our lifeline to the city, carries 100,000 cars per day, develops some cracks, and it is now closed for the next two years. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Yep. There's a news story. We've been over that bridge uh, hundreds of times. That, that implicates us, Suzanne. Oh. It means we contributed <laughs> to the problem. Just as I suspected. Yes. I only wanted to get the salties on Alki. Come on, give me a break. The Sunday buffet is magnificent. So now you've got to go almost all the way to Burien to get across. Now, as you recall, there's a lower bridge. It's a turnstile drawbridge. But but the city has said you have to be freight or an emergency vehicle or a bus to use the lower bridge because it can't handle all the traffic it would get otherwise, and and obviously we're in a state of emergency, so um, it's not an option. Uh, I think they'll work something out eventually, but um, just in case you didn't get the stay-in-place point in West Seattle, we've got the point now because we can't. I guess wait. Yeah. no bridge. Unreal. That, that leads me to funny. ask you, Shepard and uh, Benny. Maybe you have the skinny on this as well. I'm just throwing this out at you guys. In terms of getting people around and across Lake Washington, for example, 90, as far as I know, it's still free. Sure. You know, you take your chances going over there. Big traffic got the tunnel, but you're on the bridge across yep. the 90. There, when it comes to 520, have they done anything with the tolls? Have they suspended those, or is it still a matter of needing to collect them? You know, if um, if I'd ever left West Seattle in the last month, <laughs> <I> might, <laughs> you'd have an answer. I might have an answer. You know, because we've opened the tunnel too, yeah. and I went ahead and you know got the little pass and been been happy to pay my tolls. It's a, you know, it's a really good question because, for example, I don't know about where you guys live, but like they've suspended uh, parking enforcement. You know, you can't park in a in, in a red zone or or, or a white zone, but um, but as far as the meters go, you know, they're, you, it's all free parking now. They're not, you know, they've just got other fish to fry, obviously. Mm. Yes, they do. Well, I have my own strategy, guys, and that is uh, I tell Suzanne when we go back to Seattle, we want to get around. I know how the traffic pattern is. It's, I mean, we moved down here to Florida in July of 2011. Okay. But my strategy, going back to the old days, I know how to handle this. I'll get around the traffic because when we go back there, we're going to use the Alaskan Way viaduct. <laughs> Good luck with yeah. that. Yeah, it's gone, baby. Yeah. As, as Betty cues up 
dust in the wind by right. Kansas. <laughs> as, as Van Morrison's saying, it's real, real gone. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I'm looking, That's... I mean, obviously we've had less traffic patrols, you know, in those last couple of weeks. Uh, there are still tolls being issued, but at this point, what's the point? I mean, you don't really need them. There's not that much traffic these days. Right. Every once in a while we'll have an accident and then everyone will jump over, but... Um, I'm with, uh, you know, uh, Shepard as far as I haven't really gone too far north. I haven't really needed to. I've stayed at the south end just because of my traffic pattern. And, yeah, haven't really needed to pay anything. Well, please stay safe. You yeah. too. Yeah. One of the places that you were doing your readings happened to be my hometown. And Gary and I were there in October for a high school class reunion and unfortunately, we missed you by, by very little, and that was Glenview, Illinois. That's where my reunion was, and that was one of the places that you read in a little bookstore there. Yes, I did, in a suburb of Illinois. And if I can re- regale you with a funny story, that, 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 um, that, was, um, that was kind of my uh, finale. Uh, in that, I'm trying to remember the name of the suburb. It's right near Northbrook. Glenview. Um, Pardon me, Glenview. Thank you. Yeah, I was in Glenview. And then I had one more reading in Indianapolis, uh, and, and I flew home from, from there. But the fun stuff happened in Detroit, if you'd like to hear about it. Sure. Uh, yes. Okay. All right. So, so, so um, my publicist is a very fine uh, gentleman from uh, Vancouver, B.C., uh, David uh, Litzbach, and he set me up some uh, interviews. So, uh, as you may know, there's a bridge, and, and, and some of you may remember back when we had an open border with Canada, um, and you could, you could drive across, and, uh, and you know that there, there, basically a suburb of Detroit is the Canadian town of Windsor, Ontario, and you just drive through this tunnel or across this bridge, and, and you're in Canada. So he got me a television interview uh, with a... Um, uh, a small college, St. Clair College, there in Windsor, and also I, I was uh, uh, very pleased to be on the NPR station um, in Detroit, WDET. And then I read in a bookstore in Windsor that night. But the uh, so I had to the the, the 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 WDET was sandwiched in between the others. So I had to go to Canada twice in one day. I had to go back and forth. So I'm, I'm heading in. To get to this little college TV station, and you know you're in line, and the, the Canadian uh, uh, there's the customs people there. You know the person you show your passport or your driver's license, your enhanced driver's license too. And and I get this guy, and uh, he says, "Well, what's your what's your business in Canada?" I said, "Well, you know, I, I, I wrote this book, and uh, I'm going to do an interview on a little TV station." And he goes, well, what's your book about? <laughs> I'm a little taken aback, but more power to him for being curious. I said, well, it's about, it's about playfulness and, and what happens when you get grown-ups who have retained the ability to be playful when they were a child. And all of a sudden, his very solemn seriousness just falls away, and he cracks up, and he goes, oh, that's me. I'm 30 going on 13. And and he thinks it's great. So I get across and I do my little interview and I come back and I do the other uh, radio interview. And then I realize, you know, of course, I have to go back to Windsor one more time to read at this bookstore that night. 
So I go, oh, I'm going to try to find the same booth, and maybe I'll get the same guy, and then I can just get waved through the border real quickly. And, uh, and so I get to the same booth, but sure enough, his shift has ended, and there's a woman there, very stern, and she says, well, what's your business in Canada? And I said, well, I'm an author. I wrote a book, and uh, I'm doing a reading at a bookstore tonight. And she goes, well, what's your book about? I'm going, my, my, these people are curious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, do they train them to do this, you know? And, and, of course, a friend of mine said, well, just tell them it's about hockey, and they'll, they'll, they'll wave you right through. No but, kidding. Um, but I don't know much about hockey, so I wasn't going to use that strategy. And I said, well, good you call, because they might think you're suspicious at that point. So. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good, good move. Good move. <laughs> so I said, well, it's a book about, you know, playfulness and grown-ups who have retained the ability to be uh, playful the way they were as a little child. And she goes, oh, it's about men. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're still getting a bad rap. So, so I started getting into a conversation with her, and this is the only time I've ever had someone at the border say, "People are like, you need to get through. You need to just go. We can't talk anymore." You know. So, so that's fine. Well, well, then I had this other uh, gig, and uh, uh, and I, and well, now I'm back in Washington State. And and the gig is at a bookstore in Spokane called Annie's, a fabulous bookstore. In case there's any Spokane folks listening, please uh, support your independent bookstores. And the folks at Annie's were just great. They just treated me really well. I had a really nice reading there, put on a little show. And I had some cousins from the Tri-Cities who drove out to uh, to come hear me. And they took me to dinner ahead of time, and we had, you know, just, I'm not, don't really drink much. And so we had a glass of wine, and it was just this very heavy red wine. And even after the reading, I went to my hotel and went to bed, and, you know, the wine just didn't sit well with me, so I didn't, I didn't sleep well. And the next morning, I had to drive to Canada again. So there's this little highway, highway basically Highway 2, and it changes into a couple things. And it, you go directly due north from Spokane into Canada. And the reading was in this lovely town called Nelson, B.C. Have you ever heard of Nelson? I have. That, have you been there? I have not. I'd like to go. Yeah, what a neat town. Very small population, like 20,000, but it's the only town, because you're just in the middle of nowhere in British Columbia. It's the only town for miles and miles around. So it feels like a bigger town because that's where everybody goes. And, and, and it's very interesting because it naturally has its indigenous people's heritage. And then you've got the, the European settlers who came, and they came as fur traders, and then they came as miners. So it has all that history. Then you have Vietnam War, and you had a certain number of uh, resistors and people dodging their draft, and they and Nelson was a popular destination. Then, when Vietnam War ended, Jimmy Carter basically uh, gave a, a, would it be called asylum or you know forgiveness, you know amnesty. Uh, they did. They said, well, you know, we kind of like it here, so you feel so you and now you're you're hanging out with the children, right, of of those people uh, who went up there. Um, and so it's kind of got a, a hippie feel to it, too, and a lot of um, arts and crafts and really, really a great town. 
So I get up the next morning in Spokane, and I'm, uh, I just I hadn't slept well, but I get in my car and uh, to head up to Nelson, and it's, it's just the most gorgeous drive. The eastern border of Washington State is in, incredible beauty in a, a, a corner of the state and a, a road I had not. I'd been to that corner of the state, but I'd never traveled. Okay, so I get to the border. It's called Nelway. So the border is middle of nowhere. And there's two guys there, you know, the the border officials, and um, they've got nothing to do, you know. <laughs> I'm the only car coming in. And so I come in, and the guy starts talking to me, and he's got he's got this funny accent. There's something about his accent that's not typically Canadian to me. And he starts talking, and he says, you know, what's your business in Canada? <laughs> I said, well, I'm... I'm going to this museum slash bookstore in Nelson, and I'm going to do a reading. I'm an author. I wrote a book. He goes, oh, really? What's your book about? <laughs> I said, it's about grown-ups who retain the ability to be playful the way they were as a child. He says, let me see. Let me take a look at that book. Give the guy a copy of the book, and he sits there and starts reading it. <laughs> and, um, and so after a couple minutes, he hands the book, starts to hand the book back to me, and he says, well, I don't know. It seems an awful lot of the people in your book have taken an awful lot of drugs. <laughs> and oh, my I, gosh. Yeah, and I did not know what to say. And I just kind of sat there speechless, and he goes, you're not bringing any drugs into Canada, are you? And I said, oh, no, 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 no. He says, you don't have any marijuana products, which is legal in both places, but you're not supposed to cross the border with it. I said, no, no, I don't have anything like that. And, uh, oh, oh, I meant to say, he prefaced it. He said, except for Elmer Fudd, it seems all the people in your book <laughs> have taken an awful lot of drugs. So he had taken a pretty careful look at it. And so he, he waves me through eventually. He's had his fun with me, and I knew he was just playing around. Sure. And, and I said, well, you know, sir, may I ask you a question? He goes, sure. I said, what's that accent you've got? <laughs> he says, oh, I'm from Manchester, England. And oh, I, oh, wow. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, New Order, Joy Division. You know, there were these post-punk bands that uh, emerged in Manchester. And so I... Also I, Eric Burden and the Animals. Thank you. Very good. Yes. And, and he goes, Oh yeah, I used to go listen to the Buzzcocks all the time when I was a kid, you know, and and so it was all very jovial. Okay, so I start to drive through the border, you know, he was he was really fun. And I start to drive through the border and he goes, By the way, we close at eight o'clock tonight. Oh. It, it had never occurred to me that a border but then when you think about it, it's the longest border in the world between US and Canada. Mm -hmm. And they just don't keep all the... And I went, whoa, I slam on the brakes. I said, what? He goes, oh, don't worry. There's another one 40 miles down the road. Where you... So so it just added over an hour to my trip back. Mm. Okay, I'm going to wrap here, but there's one more little part to the story. Okay. <laughs> I go to the museum. I do my reading. I'm, I'm kind of exhausted. I get out. It's 930 at night. I get in my car, 
boom, I got a headlight out. I got one headlight, and I've got to find this other border crossing and, and, and put all my faith in Google Maps, and I'm in the middle of nowhere, British Columbia. It's me and the deer and the raccoons. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm driving, and it's up and down. It's this little road and that little road, and I can you know barely see. And, uh, of course, the one thing you're going to find in the middle of the wilderness is a casino. So <laughs> I come across a casino and went up to the folks there, and I said, I can't m- make a mistake here. I want to make sure you, which is the border crossing, which is open tonight. So they steered me right, and I finally get there, and she waves me through and says, you got a headlight out. I go, I know. And, and then the check engine light comes on, and I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to be stuck in the middle of nowhere. It's just an oil change. I'm sure I just need an oil change. So I just keep driving. It's the middle of the night anyway. What's, what, what can I do? And sure enough, Washington State Patrol, lights flashing and circling, pull me over. Hmm. <laughs> and he says, you know, you got a headlight out. I said, <laughs> I know, officer. He says, well, just use your brights. There's nobody on the road anyway. And I said, thanks, uh-huh. I'm going to get a new headlight in the morning, I promise. So that was my, that was my little adventure with uh, crossing into Canada and back, and uh, I cherish it. <laughs> it got a good story out of it all. Back and forth and back and forth, e- each one with uh, another playful person that you found. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, and- very interesting. And so much of what <clears throat> I would like to talk, you gave us, you just set the table beautifully, Shepard, because so much of a movement in society, and you're aware of many of them, you detail them beautifully in your book. Thank you. The idea behind disruptive play seems to be transforming society in a way that isn't negotiated in a three-piece suit across a table, though that may happen when the suits upstairs get their hands on a contract, for example, but by people who are willing to push boundaries in order to show society where they are, where all of us are, and where we might go alternatively if we're not happy with the status quo. Absolutely. And, 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 and you know, and I know you've, you've got a strong interest in the beats, and I did, I, I, and, and, and getting ready for today, I did a little bit of thinking, because the beats are exact, that's exactly who they are, right? They, they challenge things. Uh, America had become so, so straight-laced. Um, and yes, yes. <clears throat> And the beats are part of that, um, that, that question that we all find ourselves asking every day now. is like, what does it mean to be an American? What, what is the concept? What's the idea of America about? And, and I think the beats are saying, well, you know, if you're going to have a constitution and you're going to give me freedom of thought, you're going to give me freedom of speech, you're going to give me freedom to be as wild an artist as I want to be, hey, I'm going to use that freedom. And I think there's a competing idea of what America is, and, in, and it, 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 it's this tenacious holding on to, 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 to this earlier thing of what we were and wanting, wanting to lock us into what that was and to say that American freedoms means the, you know, the freedom to burn as much fossil fuel as I want to, you know. Um, right. is, 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 is not, that, that, that's, I don't think that's what it was about, but I think that's the debate we're having, don't you? Um, yes. Absolutely. Yes. 
when we had you on the first time and we were talking about your book, Disruptive Play, we really concentrated on the historical origins of play because your book is is quite uh, thorough in starting at the very beginning. And we got as, as far as uh, just about up to the beat generation in talking about uh, about play over the millennia. And we ended talking about the Dada painters. Right. This, this time we really wanted to look at the beats. Gary's been reading books by beat authors and uh, our, our demographic for our show has a lot of baby boomers in it. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to me that <clears throat> the beats pretty much coincide with the birth of the baby boomers yeah. from about 46 to 64, which is considered the boomer generation. And the beats were active post-World War II up until rock and roll in the 60s. That's the, the time frame that you're talking about. But in, in, instead of being, <clears throat> excuse me, artists, we were talking about the beats being the the combination of jazz in music and a particular kind of writing that was disruptive after World War II in exactly the thing that you're talking about. After World War II, there were there were two ways to go either the gray flannel suit way or, <clears throat> thank you, either either the gray flannel suit way or the independent looking at it and saying we're not all that in a bag of chips and looking at us in a more um, constructive way, a more progressive way, as opposed to just falling into what we had been in the 40s and 50s. And so I, I, we wanted to talk about the Beat Generation today. And, uh, you know, I, I gravitated uh, in my own uh, preparations for today, I gravitated to the same thing you did where um, there's the part where, you know, uh, Jack Kerouac spent all this time at Mitten's Playhouse, the great jazz club in New York City, and he's listening to Lester Young, he's listening to Charlie Parker, and, he, and, he, and he's enthralled with this, mode of improvisation that they could get up and create a masterpiece of, of jazz solo spontaneously. Of course, the conditions had to be right, and musicians had good nights and bad nights. And, and, and playfulness, as we know, is it's about making up rules, playing by the rules for a little while, and then breaking, starting to break those rules and, and seeing what else shows up, and you come up with new rules. And and, and, and jazz and music is, is a great example. I mean, Charlie Parker, uh, you know, Lester Young started fiddling with the rules, and Charlie Parker just tore them down and, and, and rebuilt it. And so Kerouac's listening to this, and he starts writing Stream of Consciousness. He doesn't edit, right? And, and, and editing and rewriting and proofing your writing is, kind of, is, is the sacred cow, as I say in the book. Um, and he just starts breaking those rules and, and writing in this stream of consciousness approach. And, of course, the subject matter is, is about people who were breaking the rules in terms of sexuality. And, and there was um, drug use, and there was, uh, there, was, there was not 
like you said, there was not buying into the gray flannel suit career building, but let's just make enough money to pay next month's rent and get the car fixed and get on the road. Um, and that was so, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking as you were talking, Suzanne, that, right, I, I can, um, the boomers are the people born between 46 and 64, but the, you know, the, the holy trinity of the beats, and there were many beats, but you've got Burroughs and Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. I guess they were all born in the, in the 20s, right? So it's or like, circa 1930, I suppose. Or the 30s, yeah, yeah. Um, but, 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 there they, but there they were chip, chipping, chipping, chipping away at it and saying, yeah, these, these are what American freedoms are about. The Constitution gave us these freedoms so that we could, you know, discover, discover new worlds, not, not necessarily through, um, you know, conquering the land, but, you know, conquering our minds. And they were conquering <laughs> on fields of paper is what I thought they were doing. It was a literary movement, and I would love to discuss this in more depth with you, but we've got to take a break. We're going to go ahead and take our one break of this hour and when we come back, the balance of the time is going to be spent talking about the beats and how beats relate to today. And we're going to start with a controversial quote out of the book of uh, Shepard Siegel, Ph.D., Disruptive Play. So stay with us and we'll be back shortly. And thank you for listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, he's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them, but I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. 
When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Shepard Siegel. He'll be talking about the disruptive play of the Beat Generation and how they relate to us in 2020. On Saturday, we play DJs for a day along with DJ Nathan, the tall guy, with music for sheltering in place. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Be sure to support the sponsors of your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our discussion with Shepard Siegel, Ph.D. He's the author of Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture. And we have Shepard on the phone, delighted to speak with him for a second time, going through this wonderful book. There is a place where Suzanne wants to go. I think there's a quote involved here. I'll turn the book over to you across this little desk, Suzanne. But before we get to that, Shepard, please tell people where they can get up close and personal with you, getting the book, of course, but also to communicate with you, especially online. Oh, absolutely. Um, So it all starts with my website. And you just have to know how to spell shepherd. And it's, it's, I realize we don't have the yellow pages anymore, and people don't usually need to hire a shepherd for their sheep. Uh, but that's how you spell it, like the occupation, S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. Siegel is spelled S-I-E-G-E-L. When in doubt, it's always an E, shepherdsiegel.com. Um, now there's this there's this little startup call out of Seattle called Amazon, and they've got the book too. I understand Amazon has lowered the priority for books and records and CDs and things that aren't necessities, so they're not as speedy as they used to be for books. And I really want to support independent bookstores, many of which are going out of business and many of which are re- relying, all of them in our country, are relying on online. So when you go to my website, there's a, there's a button for Amazon, there's a button for Barnes & Noble, and there's a button for independent bookstores. You hit that one, enter your zip code, and it will take you to the closest independent bookstore, which hopefully will ship you a copy. But, but don't be afraid of Amazon either. So you can find Disruptive Play by Shepard Siegel at Amazon. Thank you very much. I said I wanted to spend the balance of this hour talking about the beats. We, as baby boomers, were all born during that beat time. So that means that our parents lived through that, even if we were a little too young to appreciate it all. I wanted to start with a quote and kind of launch from there. Uh, From your book, Disruptive Play, you say, Beat has lost none of its vitality over the years. The Beat generation played insistently in a culture that could not accommodate their vision then and is only now catching up. 50s America had done the courtesy of not collapsing into a fascist state. Freedoms survived, if barely. Artists grabbed the edges of a lost society and look to madmen and criminals for sanity and ethics. That really caught my attention. 
tension when you said that 50s America had done the courtesy of not collapsing into a fascist state. The Beats were born out of World War II, where obviously so many households participated in that war, big war effort. Now the war is over, we come back home, and what do you mean by the America did not collapse into a fascist state at that time? Well, we, we, you know, um, and this is timely, and I, I, I looked over that quote myself, um, uh, Suzanne, and, and um, so we fought World War II to protect our freedoms. So we had this moment after World War II, which was, a, a, a victory against Nazism, uh, uh, against the Third Reich and, and, and totalitarianism, to protect our constitutional freedoms. But it, it was it also it also uh, there was there there was this cultural tightening down. Um, uh, you know, World War II, we had no sooner beaten the Germans and the Japanese and the Italians than we decided that the Soviet Union was our enemy, and we entered the Cold War. And I just recently, find, and I know it's been out for a few years, but I just recently watched the film Trumbo, uh, which does a great job of talking about, I, you know, and listening to you, I want to describe it as the anti-beat. Um, you had codes for movies, so that uh, sex was very constrained in the films to where, you know, we all remember watching those sitcoms growing up where the husband and wife had twin beds, right? They didn't even sleep together. And the code around the movies was if a man and a woman were to be in a bed together, one of them had to have one foot on the floor instead of in the bed so that they couldn't be shown in any intimate embrace. Um, And authority figures always had to be treated well, as if they were right. Um, I think we've gone through a bit of a shift on that uh, since the 50s. Um, Criminals always had to be uh, punished and so forth. And so the beats were kind of like a response to that, and they said, well, you know, I'm not sure authority figures are always right, and I'm not sure that there's anything wrong with my book or my poem or my play or my life being more sexually open. And so it wasn't just fascism, but in my opinion, it was Puritanism, I think, that the Beats were rebelling against. And that the reason the United States had this clampdown and this tendency towards a more authoritarian state was because of our Puritan uh, heritage. And the, 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 and, and so, so the, to me... To me, the enemy is doctrine. To me, the enemy is anyone who says they've got good and evil figured out, and here are the rules for being good, because I don't think anybody's got that completely figured out. And I will fight back against anyone trying to take away my freedom to explore questions of morality and to explore questions of how I want to live my life, so long as I'm not hurting anybody else. Am I getting to your question, Suzanne? Yeah, oh, you absolutely are. One of the things that Gary and I were talking about and that you mentioned in your book is that the the beats, especially these writers, were not to be admired. Uh, and 
And uh, what was it you were mentioning this morning? In literary terms, they were worthy of great admiration. They were rules breakers, no question about that. And a lot of people admired them sometimes from afar, but nevertheless saw the worthiness of their literary output. Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, the poet, the novelist, William S. Burroughs. These three, the Holy Trinity, as you referred to them. Yes. I mean, if you get a fourth, you could have your own Mount Rushmore for these guys there. And and, and maybe the fourth would be, speaking of which, Shepard, the fourth just might be Neil Cassidy, though his writings were sporadic and partial. But his influence on the on the beats, the leaders of the beat generation was profound And at the same time, I think he qualifies as a master of disruptive play, as a trickster in his own right, who came to a tragic end. In fact, it was an end that was occasioned by tragic episodes. Here was a man who had such charisma. He was also a very handsome man. And he was a very high, highly energetic individual. At the same time, he was clever as the Dickens, so that people who knew Neil Cassidy said that you could be in a room with him, having nothing in mind in common with him, but you might be sharing a beer or he would join a conversation you were holding. And within seemingly a matter of minutes, Neil Cassidy would have you buying into some scheme of his, Uh. indulging in some kind of wild reverie or making plans to refashion society or just get away from it all to go on a lark. And you found yourself tumbling into his world and realizing that you were not in control of what was going on. It was Neil Cassidy's show and you were along for the ride. Yeah, well said. Well said. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And you know, yes, and we could think of him as a fourth. Um, I What I liked to do was I, it, this idea that the art, it, like you say, his writing was very sporadic because it was just like you said, uh, Gary, it wasn't about reading a book by Neil Cassidy. It was about hanging out with Neil Cassidy, that the life itself, and this is something that Dada's seeded, that um, you, your life is the piece of art. The art that hangs on the wall or gets sold in the bookstore, that's just the residue, the residue of the kind of living that you did. And nobody personifies that better than Neil Cassidy. But he was as amused to Kerouac. You had Herbert Hunky as amused to uh, Burroughs, and you had uh, Carl Solomon, right? As the None of these guys produced as much, but they inspired uh, these uh, uh, the ones who were writing. I was thinking about this, Gary, that um, because whether you're like the anthropologist or you're the reporter, the journalist, or you're the author, if that's what how you identify yourself, you have to be an observer, right, in some sense. And, and so Neil Cassidy shows up and goes, oh, yeah? Observe this, baby, you know? <laughs> and, 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 he, and he stole more than 500 cars in his life? Yeah. <laughs> he was a great car thief, you know? He was yeah. a literary muse to the Beat Generation, and he was a great car thief. Yes, and what happened was. to him, let me tell this story, Shepard, and Please. if I'm getting any of the details wrong, you correct me. Okay. There was a man that built up a whole boatload of karma. That's one way of looking at it, if you take the metaphysical view. He had tons of karma with which he was going to have to deal. And yet what happened to him? He moves to San Francisco, he and his wife, and 
he winds up, of course, he loved his pot, and so did Jack Kerouac and the others. Sure. He goes, he needs a ride to work, but he got himself a job. He needed a ride to work. Some guys show up. I think there might have been three of them. I don't recall. But at any rate, he said, wow, I need a ride to work. Can you give me a lift? Which they did. And when he gets to his workplace before he exits the car, his way of showing gratitude was to give them three marijuana joints. He had those in his possession, and that was his thank you to them here, guys, and offers them three marijuana joints. Well, they took those joints and busted them on the spot because the people who gave him a ride had been surveilling him. They were narcs. Uh, okay. I actually don't know the story, so you, you told it perfectly, obviously. <laughs> and Neil Cassidy wound up, for all that he had done, he didn't get busted for stealing any cars. He got busted for giving marijuana. narcs three marijuana joints, <laughs> and he did two years in San Quentin prison for that crime. I never Actually, I never knew that. Wow. And you're going, San Quentin? That's where they kept the gas chamber. Right. I mean, and for him to wind up in that sorry spot for three marijuana cigarettes when he could have done quite a lot of time for stealing cars and various other hijinks, he was so much in that vein of thought and in his operations that William S. Burroughs, when he found out that his beat buddies were going to be showing up on his land, I think he had a, a nice big spread there in Texas, as I recall. And when he found out that Neil Cassidy was going to show up along with them, he was upset because he viewed Neil Cassidy essentially as a con man. Uh-huh. And this was a con man, nevertheless, who could be amused to some great writers, especially Jack Kerouac, who befriended him and he them. They shared women. They shared drugs. They shared all their stories. They went on these great road trips together. And it helped to create a mythos the beat generation that people, even if they couldn't participate, admired perhaps with a lot of envy because they seemed so self-willingly liberated. Yes. Yeah, very well said. And I think, Gary, this is a good point for us to insert, and I, I trust you'll agree with me, uh, the distinction between, I don't even like the word hero, but, uh, but somebody, uh, an adventurer, a pioneer, a disruptive player, if you will, who breaks a lot of rules, including laws, whom we can learn from, and role models. <laughs> and I make it very clear, I go, you got to give these guys credit. You're going, you're going okay. Uh, well, you can call them anti-heroes, Shepard, in the sure. same way that uh, Jack Nicholson was an anti-hero in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Well, yeah, yeah, right. And it's like, it's like, Okay, so William Burroughs decided he was going to try every drug he could possibly try. This is just the most blatant example. I am not recommending, and I don't think you are either, that people go out and try every drug they can try. But right. in a way, we should have some gratitude that there was someone with a mind, and he knew how to write things down in a way that we could learn from reading them. And, you know, it's like, you know, sending... Alan Shepard into outer space or something, you know, and come back and tell us what you learned, you know. So um, the idea was never to send the entire country into outer space, literally or figuratively. But if somebody had the, you know, I'm going to call it courage, you know, the courage to take those kinds of risks and live to tell the tale, well, I'm at least curious. 
you know, Shepard, there was a, a short program of, I don't know how many, six or eight episodes, whatever, Gary and I started watching because we were curious, called The Kings of Pain. And this was two young fellows, probably in their 20s, that would go all over the world and get bitten and stung by poisonous insects and animals and all kinds of stuff and record their responses to it and label everything. And measure the level of pain. Measure the level of pain on all these different things, which ones like really knocked him out and which ones were just painful for a minute or an hour. And, and he and I, it's like we couldn't look away. It's like finding the hottest pepper or something, huh? Yes, right. yes. In the same way, and, yes. And no, of course, I don't recommend it. But am I glad that somebody says that, you know, one kind of ant is more venomous and terrible than a different kind of a wasp? I right. mean, to have that information is good. I don't right. want to do it, but the information is and good. And I think that's what you're saying. And this it became is. a televised event for them. One right. after another, after another species that in the wrong set of circumstances could kill you. Right. And they were enduring this. One guy would go first, then the other guy would, and they're watching each other. And I'm going, man, talk about shared experience. No, thank you. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's, kind of like the x-rated jackass if you ever saw that program i know what you're talking about <laughs> vicarious experience watching tv is one thing but to go through that uh, i watched it with a horrified fascination yeah and so you know we we can talk about you know what is learned and you know and they were breaking the rules of their own brain and, and expanding their consciousness in a very authentic way and I think bringing back things of, of value, that what, is, what does it take, first of all, to create a liberated mind? And ultimately, what does it look like when we have a liberated society? And I think that the trickster archetype, and it manifests in the beats, but it manifests in a lot of places. I want folks to know that this is just one chapter of the book. You know, we talk about the hippies and the counterculture, but we also talk about Burning Man and, and talk about Anonymous. Uh, and a fascinating dark side of the trickster spirit, which is uh, you can get on Netflix called Black Mirror. Um, that that's very intriguing. But but I wonder, would you mind? You know, there's one thing that I wrote, except I didn't write it, and uh, Jack Kerouac did. And because I think some of your listeners may still be wondering, what the heck do we mean by beat? And I went through on the road, and from about. Oh, my God, about 14 different places and on the road. I pulled Jack Kerouac defining beat, and I mashed them all up. Could Would you mind? Could I read oh, that? Oh, yeah. No, please, please do. do. we I got think, a couple of minutes. Yep, that'll help uh, complete the conversation. Okay, it's right there on page 142, uh, which I think is right where Suzanne had brought us. Beat shoes that flap, old bums and beat cowboys. My eyes are closing, they're red-hot, sore, tired, beat. Like the man with the dungeon stone in the gloom, rising from the underground, the sordid hipsters of America, a new beat generation that I was slowly joining. I was so lonely, so sad, so tired, so quivering, so broken, so beat, that I got up my courage. I lost faith in him that year. I stayed in San Francisco a week and had the beatest time of my life. Then he got his suitcase, the beatest suitcase in the USA. 
as though tremendous revelations were pouring into him all the time now. And he's talking about Neil Cassidy. And I'm convinced they were. And the others suspected as much, and they were frightened. He was beat, the root, the soul of beatific, dealing with the pit and prejudice of poor beat life itself and the god-awful streets of man. Beat Negroes who'd come up from Alabama to work in car factories on a rumor. If you sifted all Detroit in a wire basket, the beater solid core of dregs couldn't be better gathered. Houses by the side of the road were different. Gas stations, beater. Fewer lamps. Real beat hurts, man. The kind you only find in Death Valley and much worse. The Mambo beat is the Conga beat from the Congo, the river of Africa and the world. It's really the world beat. In downtown Mexico City, thousands of hipsters in floppy straw hats and long lapel jackets over bare chests padded along the main drag, some of them selling crucifixes and weed in the alleys, some of them kneeling in beat chapels next to Mexican burlesque shows and sheds. All right. I dig, man. I dig. I dig. <laughs> You're snapping your fingers, I hope, instead of clapping. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, it, 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 it is a homily, you know, it is a synonym, or I forget what you call it, but this, you know, it is have to do with getting beat up in a way, being beaten, being defeated, and, and, then, and then rising up again, you somehow uh, liberated when you've lost things by, by being beat. I, I asked Gary this morning where the term, the beat generation, came from. I said, did it have to do with the rhythm and he said, I think it had more to do with being beaten down. People who were beaten up and yeah. beaten down, yeah. and yet their reaction, their response to these forces in society that they felt oppressed them got a, a countercultural response from people who were tired of being beaten down without some kind of redeeming value for all of their troubles. And it found its way into the pages of books. It found its way into poetry readings, into public demonstrations, and that created the forerunner of the hippies who should not be confused with the beats because they had their differences. Right, right. Yet, you're absolutely right, yet so was Suzanne. It is also, there you go, when in music, you've got the beat. you got the beat. That's right. Shepard Siegel, we want to have you back again. We're going to move into the 60s with you next time. And From we are going to talk about the hippies. We <laughs> talked about the origins of disruptive play. We talked about Dada. We talked about the beats. We're going to let the beats go. And we're going to ask you to return once again. And we're going to get into the 60s and the hippies. Please tell us that you will come back and talk again. Well, I will, and I'm also working on a follow-up book, so we have no shortage of topics. That's great. We look forward to our next encounter. Shepard Siegel, Ph.D., author of Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture. Thank you, Shepard, for joining us, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Stay tuned because... Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience, and then American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. At Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.